0: This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top level instructors who who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events. Nine month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call three one oh eight two five nine four one five. That's three one zero eight two five nine four one five or visit them on the web at UCLA Extension dot EDU slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writers program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my god you
1: are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful Jake
1: did what a struggle you know it was
0: incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host brad listing just one person at just one time okay everybody here we go again (laughs) this is it this is other people this is more of a conversation than an interrogation this is currently vying for your attention it is good to be with you my guest today is Elna baker she is a multi-talented human being she does one woman shows she has written for Elle magazine glamour magazine uh she's written for the onion she has performed at the moth she has appeared on this american life and she has written a memoir called the new york Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. It's available now from Penguin. Uh, Also, tomorrow, May 28th, Elna will be appearing at the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience in Brooklyn at Public Assembly over in Williamsburg. That's at 70 North 6th Street. And uh, she will be appearing with other writers, including Edgar Oliver, who was the guest on episode 72, I believe. Uh, along with Lenore Zion and Chad Ferries. It's going to be a great show. It kicks off at 7 p.m. It costs 5 bucks at the door, and the show is co-sponsored and co-hosted by our good friends over at Emergency Press, which is a great indie imprint. You can check them out at emergencypress.org. So uh, what else? I'm back in town now. I just landed a couple of hours ago, in fact. Uh, I am somewhat exhausted. I was in Tennessee uh, for my godson Oscar's baptism, and I was visiting some old friends, So I was up late, Uh, I was not sleeping a whole lot, Uh, I was staying there with my friends in their lovely house in Knoxville, I was sleeping in a bunk bed, Uh, there was some jet lag, I was drinking a fair bit, there was some wine, there was some vodka, there was travel, there were lots of airports, there were lots of lines in airports, there was lots of hand sanitizer, there was lots of caffeine. And uh, while I was there in Tennessee, I went to Dollywood, the Dollywood uh, theme park, the Dolly Parton theme park in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, I believe, and uh, that was an experience. It was very warm. It was hot even, and it was very crowded. There was an incredible crush of humanity at this park uh, when we were there, and there was an incredible amount of uh, fried food being served, and uh, there were an incredible amount of people in the park, many of whom were very large people eating very large quantities of fried food, Uh, chicken wings, elephant ears, pork rinds, corn dogs, french fries, you name it. Uh, And uh, the food tended to be served by people wearing gingham. So it was an experience. It was a cultural experience. And, uh, you know, uh, one thing I definitely learned while I was there uh, is that uh, there was a lot of food sitting in direct sunlight. And uh, I, I do not enjoy seeing, for example, a chili dog in direct sunlight. That troubles me on an aesthetic level. So uh, here's something else that troubles me, conflict, interpersonal conflict, even of the minor variety. Uh, I noticed this when I was there in Tennessee, uh, you know, I was over at my friend's house after the baptism, there was a bit of a post-baptism party, lots of married couples, there were cocktails, there were hors d'oeuvres and so on. And I remember standing there having a vodka and listening in uh, on the conversation and, you know, I was in from out of town, and I was just meeting most of these people who already had, a, you know, pre-existing friendships and relationships and whatnot. So I was kind of hanging back on the periphery uh, and just listening. And uh, this married couple happened to be talking, and they had what I think can be classified as a very minor argument. Uh, it was some light bickering. And, uh, you know, the wife contradicted the husband. The husband then contradicted the wife. Uh, there, was some, there, there was a spat and uh, as it happened a small hush fell over the room and it it was very brief we're talking like a three second window of time Uh, but in that three second window of time I became so acutely uncomfortable uh, that I imagined running outside into the street with dynamite strapped to my chest and detonating myself in the middle of the road and uh, I'm not even kidding (laughs) I'm not even kidding Uh, this is actually what went through my mind spontaneously it was part uh slapstick comedy and part serious uh I, f- I guess i just found the bickering and the subsequent you know the subsequent burst of uh, silence incredibly uncomfortable uh you know at a social level so much so that it made me want to flee the premises and explode uh which is obviously an overreaction and which is probably more troubling than the bickering itself but uh this is my imagination i, I don't appear to be entirely in control of it uh or at least that's how it seems And uh, I can get this way in certain instances where certain social, you know, discomforts become uh, so painful for me that I experience a very intense desire to flee the situation. So to give another example, uh, like when I'm watching television, okay, and uh, let's say somebody is on TV and they're getting humiliated, whether they know it or not. So let's say I'm watching uh, The Late Show with David Letterman and some uh, young starlet is making an ass out of herself. Uh, or let's say that a comedian is bombing and I'm watching this, the experience will often be so uncomfortable you know, uncomfortable for me personally that I will have to change the channel. And, and not only will I have to change the channel, I will race to change the channel as if the situation is somehow contagious and my only method of recourse is to move away from it as fast as possible to turn it off and to put it out of its misery. And, uh, you know, occasionally I guess the discomfort is generated live in person within my actual personal sphere. And, uh, when that happens, I will imagine myself running away at a dead sprint with dynamite strapped to my chest, uh, as if I'm in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. So it's very odd and, uh, I just want people to get along. I just want harmony. I just want social grace. Is that so wrong?
1: I was called the garment, and not everyone wears it. You wear it at a certain point in your life. So you, when you go through, they have Mormon temples, you know, like the big glowing Disney-like white buildings. And uh, when you go through the temple, you can take on what are called covenants where you make a greater commitment to the religion. And a symbol of that commitment is the garment, which basically looks like a, for guys, it's like an under-T-shirt. And long johns that only go to the knee. And for girls, it's like silky long johns that go to the knee, a, and like a camisole undershirt. And that's what—that's basically what. the underwear is
0: okay. So, and and you have to buy this, or do they give this to you?
1: You have to buy it. So they have like at the temple, they have like a little store where you can buy it. I think you can order online or something. I never, like, I never wore the garment. the underwear? Special underwear? Um, because I didn't go through
0: the temple. Okay. So, but how do you feel about that? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, as a as a component, because like, uh, do do you look at something like that and say to yourself that's ridiculous, or do you say to yourself, "Uh, well, that's just that's okay for some people, but not me.
1: Well, when I was Mormon, I remember really resisting it because as a woman, you can't wear anything sexy if you wear it because you see the lines of the garment. And so it always felt like a lot of it was like preventing a woman or, or your own self-expression of your sexuality because it kind of covered that up. Right. So I never went through with getting it. Now that I, you know, now that I'm not Mormon, I just get it as like another one of the things you had to do that's kind of weird.
0: Yeah. So do you have antipathy towards the religion or is it one of those kind of like peaceful breaks with it? Like, do, is it something that like, I, cause I feel like, you know, I don't spend every day sitting around stewing about having been Catholic. Like, I, I rarely do. It's like when, I, when the subject comes up, I'll talk about it. And there is, I think, if I'm being honest, some anger there. Like, this is so dumb. Why was I exposed to this as a kid? And, like, why did people tell me there was a hell? And, you know, all the usual stuff. Um, but I find that some people, uh, you know, even people who ha- are, like, cafeteria Catholics or people who have drifted from their religion, whatever it might be, uh, can sometimes have a much more benign uh, feeling. Uh, do you have, like, anger, or do you feel like you're pretty sunny about it all?
1: I think somewhere in between the two. It, it's somewhat benign in the sense that I didn't read a lot of, like, anti-Mormon literature afterwards, or I didn't get educated as to all the ways I was brainwashed, just because I felt like, you know, just move on. Any sort of anger towards it is just going to kind of foster more energy put towards it. And right now, I just need to figure out how to live as a completely different person than I've lived my whole life. Right. And, you know, I think for me, it's interesting because I felt like me taking a break from being a Mormon or, or you know, stopping being a Mormon was letting my family down or me being the black sheep or I was the bad kid or a disappointment. And now that I'm far enough away, you know, I felt all this guilt for doing it. And now I think, wait, what if I'm the smart one? Like, <laughs> what if I'm the one who did the right thing by not being Mormon?
0: And I would like, and I,
1: it didn't even occur to
0: me. Well, this is the thing, okay? This is the thing is that like, it, it, you run the risk of sounding self righteous, or I would run the risk of sounding self righteous by saying absolutely you're the smart one. This is batshit crazy. And it's like batshit crazy on its face. Like a garment? Like, what, what is this? you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, there's so much about it that to me is so obviously nuts. And, and I'm not just saying Mormonism. I think all religions nuts, um, or at least most of it. And uh, I look at Catholicism, and they have like literally a systemic uh, child rape problem among priests, which is not an exaggeration. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not even hyperbole. That's actually true. And that's crazy. And so that alone, I think, is fair grounds to want to disassociate yourself from it. And mm-hmm. I, I sort of resent the idea or I bristle at the thought that, like, somehow that could be uh, – or I, I could be considered self-righteous for saying so. you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like where, Yeah,
1: where, no, where, I think
0: I, where, one of the, the big things
1: that I've been told, you know, on that regard is that that part of the reason I've strayed from the faith is that I'm selfish or that I – it's that I think myself more important than God,
0: oh, boy. and you know, in my
1: mind, I'm like, it's not even about that. <laughs> you
0: know? You're like, I just, wanna, oh. I just want to wear sexy clothes and drink caffeine. Give me a break.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to do more than kiss. Come yeah,
0: on. <laughs> yeah, for God's sakes. Okay, so let's let's dial this back. Like, what is your family situation? Where you, like, where are you from? You had like kind of an interesting upbringing, right? Like, you were all over the map.
1: Yeah, I was born in Seattle area, and then I moved to Madrid and London. And then after, I went to NYU for college, but my parents moved to Siberia, and my dad ran a titanium factory there, and now he runs a factory in China. So it's a pretty, especially for a Mormon, it was a pretty international upbringing.
0: Yeah, I mean, are, like, was it kind of like, uh, I don't know, I mean, it's, it, do you feel like you, you gained a level of sophistication from that kind of upbringing that you might not have gotten had you just been stateside your whole childhood?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think you learn about history from seeing the places, so you learn about Auschwitz because you're there. You know, it's not—everything it, becomes real, and and you get to travel alone and get to see that people are different than you. And, you know, it's interesting to try to be, you know, part of this tight-knit Mormon community and be told that this was the only path to God when it, it became very clear very early on that literally no one else is doing this but us is what it felt like
0: right oh you know, yeah because I mean when you're living abroad in these uh, different places there couldn't have been a very robust Mormon community correct or no no
1: there weren't there were small congregations but hardly any
0: so how did you relate to the people I mean did you did you were there outward expressions of faith or was it mostly something that happened within the family I uh,
1: well you know, we did go to church and there was enough people at church where you had a a small community there. And then I think it was, and I think a lot of what you're taught as a Mormon is the story that, that you're different. You're part of this community or this tribe and this sets you apart from other people. And there's a certain level of being special or chosen about it. Uh And I think that, uh, you know, what I found as I've gotten older is that, that actually isn't a good thing. Like it makes you feel like people are different than you when they're not. You kind of are raised feeling separate and you feel like you're never going to really belong and, uh, that it's actually totally fine to belong.
0: Yeah. To the big, like, like messy, confused human family. (laughs) Right. Let's just own it. (laughs) Um, okay, so t- take me inside of a Mormon church service. What does that look like? I've never been to one.
1: Uh, well, they last forever. <laughs> so, oh, God.
0: oh, God. Yeah. I'm already. It's my- going to
1: be three hours of your Sunday, Ugh. and it starts with uh, what's called sacrament, which is everyone, everyone in the whole church meets in the same big meeting room. Uh And it's called the chapel. And you have a bishop who kind of, you know, conducts the meeting. But in in the Mormon faith, there aren't paid clergy. So a bishop is just like your friend's dad who got asked to be the bishop. And he works at, you know, FedEx normally. (laughs) So the bishop is just that guy. And then usually starts with a prayer and a song. And then they have a sacrament, but they don't have wine. And bread, they have bread and water.
0: Oh, God. You don't even get a little swiggle. Yeah. Wine.
1: You don't even get any wine. And then uh, after that, there's three speakers chosen in the conversation. The speakers are told to speak out. But again, they're not like trained speakers. So usually it's just really boring and scattered. And then that lasts for an hour and 15 minutes.
0: Wait, and wait. the next two hours. You have okay. th- you have three speakers talking for a combined hour and 15 minutes.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, it ends up being about 15 minutes each, and then there's prayers and all that other stuff that took up some time. Okay. Yeah, three speakers. And then uh, the second hour of church is, like, class, where men and women go to the same class. And then the third hour of church is another class, where women go to a class together and women go to a class together.
0: Holy cow, that is an undertaking so yeah. what, okay so at the at the, at the uh this, you know the all sexes when you have all genders in the same room uh you know you're talking about what, and then when you go off into the women's room, what are you talking about
1: well uh the the second hour class is usually is some sort of scripture study, but it's like an aspect of it, so it might be like oh we're going to learn about this scripture which is kind of about charity or we're going to learn about this subject or why the church you know, has the Word of Wisdom. So you're learning about different doctrine in the church. And then the, the third hour tends to be a little bit more catered towards like the female needs. So when I was growing up, there was what was called Young Women's is what I had to go to. And basically it's like Boy Scouts for girls and we had to pack off on all these different things. So you're or, you know, make bottles for babies. learning <laughs> It's ridiculous, but you have to get, like, you know, you pass off on. So I feel like I, among my girlfriends, I have these strange home ec qualities that no other girl my age can have.
0: You can churn butter and stuff like that?
1: I know, exactly. I know how to churn butter. But the funny thing is, in, like, boys' kids, you get, like, a merit badge, and for us, like if you passed off on enough stuff, you got like a really cheap necklace. Okay. <laughs> like, it was all the, the whole motivation was jewelry.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, what happens to you when you become an adolescent? You know, like do you do you find yourself like increasingly at odds, or were you still sort of in it at that point?
1: I was in it, but I think I was always sort of kicking and screaming. You know, like. When I was a little girl, my mom tells a story about how at the age of six, I had just started, you know, kindergarten. And I uh, kind of figured out that this is what school was. And so I said to my mom, you know, when will we be done with school? And she said, well, when you graduate. And then I immediately asked her uh, when I would graduate from church, like if there was a word for that. And I was disappointed to find out that the word for being done with church was death. Like when I died, (laughs) we have to keep going to church.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, And then when I was a teenager, well, another thing that's really challenging when you're Mormon is they have this thing called seminary. So all through high school, you have to wake up at six in the morning and an hour before classes, you have to go to scripture study every morning. And I hated this. So I would, uh, just kick and scream and try to get out of it. And it was my older sister's job to wake me up in the morning. So I would sneak into her room and unplug her alarm clock and plug it back in so she wouldn't wake up. And eventually she sort of caught on to this, so she would lock her door. And then I found out that the, uh, you know, outlet box for the fuse box for the whole house was in my bedroom. So on nights when I just knew I couldn't wake up at six in the morning, I would pull the fuse Push it back, and then like everybody, my dad would be late to work, all five kids would be late. To, it was just a huge shit show, <laughs> and I was just it was worth it for me.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I can respect this, I like this. Um, and so when you talk about you know, because I think about I'm always I'm obviously comparing uh, my Catholic upbringing to uh, your Mormon upbringing, though they're not exactly the same. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of repression in Catholicism, uh, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, notoriously, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's like the, uh, what do you call it? You know, the Catholic schoolgirl or the, 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 you know, the sexual repression actually leads to sexual deviance. Uh, but I don't hear <laughs> as much of that about, you know, Mormon teenagers. Is, is, is there a lot of that? I mean, do you find that because of there's so much repression that you have a lot of uh, young people, once they reach adolescence, acting out? Or do you feel like they, they keep it more in check somehow?
1: They did keep it more in check. I think that, I mean, really, like, you are taught that sex is the second serious sin next to murder. And so you are in fear of doing something that serious, committing that serious of a sin. And so I think, you know, the way that it kind of works is that a lot of Mormons just get married really, really young. So that at that point when they would kind of break away or just need to have sex, 18 or 19, they get married. <laughs> uh, so that that covers it. But then it's funny because they try to teach us in church, you know, they're, they're constantly teaching lessons on chastity or, or about how we can't have sex or do these things, but they can't use the words, you know, so it's all sort of vague. And also Mormons love metaphors, uh, you know, so like if they're teaching about repentance, they'll have like wet wipes or, you know, some magic, you know, marker thing and then erase it. And um my favorite metaphor or lesson that they had in church was this uh the young women's teacher came into class with a tray of cookies and kind of slammed them down on the table and said, Does anyone want a cookie? And then you look closer and the cookies were sort of crumbled and there was dirt sprinkled on them. And she's like, That's right. No one wants a dirty half eaten cookie, <laughs> and that was like how I learned not to have sex um, was that it, that I wasn't going to be but then again, like now that I'm a little bit older, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't want a dirty half eaten cookie, but late at night, if you've had a few drinks, you know those <laughs> cookies don't look that bad,
0: yeah, you can just rub it, you know, you can just wipe it off, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's a, that actually sounds uh, maybe a little bit worse. I mean, I remember being taught that having sex before marriage was a cardinal sin, which means that uh, God doesn't forgive those. <laughs> um, but what was the, you know, you said that it was a sin next to murder. What was the penalty? I'm assuming, was it a hell myth? Was that what they were giving you, or do they have something more descriptive? You
1: no, know, there's, because uh, Mormons, technically, they don't believe in hell. They believe in there are three degrees to heaven. And the highest degree of heaven is called the celestial kingdom and that's uh you have to be married in the temple and your family is gonna be forever and when you die it'll all be together. So the penalty for having sex was that you wouldn't be able to go to the celestial kingdom and you wouldn't be with your family after you died.
0: Oh, which is exactly what you wanna tell a child. That'll that'll scare yeah.
1: you. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: Bastards. I'm sorry, but that's just like child abuse to me. I think it's terrible. Um, okay. So, what did you do? Uh, you know, like you're an adolescent. You obviously are interested in boys. Uh, I'm assuming you were interested in boys, right? You're not a lesbian.
1: I was. Yeah.
0: I am. You. You still are. (laughs) I still am. You remain interested in men. Uh, but so what happens to you when that starts happening? Like, do you just have all these kind of uh, private crushes that you're basically burying?
1: Yeah, no, I never did anything. Anyway. I had like one wild night when I was 16.
0: Okay, let's describe <laughs> this a- wild night. What happened? Okay.
1: Well, I was in London and my aunts came to visit and they're not Mormon. And we went out to a restaurant and I ordered an orange Fanta, like Santa. It's like an orange soda. Uh-huh. But they thought I said orange vodka. So they gave me this like, orange juice, and I knew it tasted a bit of funny, and I thought maybe there's alcohol in it. But I also was like, "Sweet, I got it." <laughs> so I drank one, and they brought me another one, and I drank it. Because in my mind, like it would have been too scary to actually order a drink, but to be sort of flipped the drink was like totally fine by me.
0: Yeah, you were like, you were, so like had, you were like hoping somebody would roofie you at that point, just something.
1: Exactly. <laughs> So then, uh, at the back of the restaurant was a door that led to like a dance club. So we went back to this dance club, and and I start and I was dancing, kind of acting, really, essentially like a little bit drunk. And my aunts were like, "What did you drink?" And next thing they know, I'm I made I was making out with this
0: sol-
1: soldier, British soldier. I met this British soldier. I was uh. sixteen. He probably in uh. his twenty. In British soldier who told me that the next day he was leaving to fight in the Balkan War and this was his like last night of freedom
0: oh and then God.
1: we made out on the dance floor and then I remember he put his hands down my shirt and touched my boobs and it was like <gasps> And I, I felt so bad about it. The next day, I, was, I had to go repent. But it was just this amazing. Like one thing led. It was really you can downward spiral real fast.
0: I was gonna say, like just like a couple of vodka and orange juices, and, and next thing you know, you're making out with a soldier on a dance floor. <laughs> was he? I mean, was he a good looking guy, or were you just like whatever? He was cute. He
1: was very cute. He
0: was okay. Good. And he had the accent and the whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. was he in uniform?
1: I uh, in uniform.
0: Uh, You broke up. What did you say? No, he wasn't. Oh, he wasn't. Okay. So he might not have been a soldier. (laughs) He might have just been... That's true.
1: That could have just been his story.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay. So, like, what about your family history with Mormonism? Like, how, how many generations back does this go? Can you trace that?
1: Oh, you know, that's what Mormons do with their free time, is they trace their family history. So, yes, we can trace it. And it's, you know, every... You know, every but he's somehow related to a prophet. So there's like, I think at least two or three Mormon prophets in my family lineage and, and the same with me. And you know, when when I was still Mormon and living in New York, people would ask me about polygamy and I would say, Oh, you know, Mormons don't do that. It's very long, long time ago. And then I remember I was at my great grandfather's funeral and there were all these relatives I didn't know. <laughs> and I asked my dad who they were. And he'd be like, Oh, they're from the other family. I was like, there's another family? And it wasn't my great-grandpa, but it was his father was a polygamist and had all these wives, and so these were all the different wives from the other family, their children and, and my cousin from that. So it's, it wasn't as far removed as I thought.
0: What did your parents say about this? Did, normal. <laughs> did they talk to you about it? Saying, did, did you bring up the, hey, by the way, uh, looks like grandpa or was it grandpa or was it great-grandpa?
1: It was it was my great great grandfather who was a polygamist. I was at my great grandfather's funeral, but there were all relatives that were related through my great great grandfather who was a polygamist.
0: Okay, and where and like so? This was back in Seattle.
1: Uh, that, the funeral was in Arizona.
0: Oh, in Arizona. Okay, so you're flying back from some uh, European uh, home base to to go to this funeral? Is that what was happening?
1: Yeah, from London to to Arizona. Okay. And then I have family in Utah as well, and
0: you on Arizona mostly. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, most people who, I mean, does it all trace back to Utah ultimately? I mean, it wasn't, a, the, the religion originated in Missouri, if I know my history, right? It's like,
1: uh, it originated in upstate New York.
0: Oh, that's right. That's where the pads were, or the tablets were found. Yeah. And then, but then the original, like, didn't Joseph, is it Joseph Smith? Yeah, didn't Joseph Smith originally try to set up uh, his homestead or whatever in Missouri, but then he got driven out, and that's what led them to Utah?
1: Yeah, they they were—the mobs sort of persecuted them in upstate New York, and then they left, and I know they were in uh, Navigate, Illinois, Kirkland, Ohio, and then Missouri as well, and then they—and at that point was when Joseph Smith was killed, uh, and then Brigham Young became the next prophet, and he led the people to Utah.
0: And he led the people to Utah. Okay, and so Joseph Smith, essentially, the origin story is that he had a vision of the angel Moroni, and then he found these tablets in the, in the buried in a hillside. They were golden tablets. Is that right? Uh,
1: the origin story is that Joseph Smith uh, was 14, and there was a the second great awakening, and all these different religions were coming through, Trying to convert people, and he wasn't sure which religion to join. And he read in the Bible, If any of you lack wisdom, ask God. So then he went into the woods to pray to find out what religion to join. And then he says that God and Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him that none of the religions were true and that they wanted to use him to set up the truth. <laughs> and then I think it was like two years later, a few years later. Uh, Moroni, the angel Moroni appeared to him in a dream and told him that these golden plates with the history of his people were buried in a hill near his house. And then that same night, Moroni came back, I can't remember, like three or seven times, a couple times repeating the same story. And then Joseph then went and uh, eventually took up the plates and translated them. And those are the, that is the history of,
0: the Book of Mormon. Okay, and so where are the plates?
1: Well, I mean, it's one of those things uh, actually, I thought I went to Book of Mormon, the musical, and one of the jokes they have is like the angel and I says, uh, You know, you're going to dig up these plates and translate them, but don't tell anyone, and we won't let anyone ever see them because then it gets to be about faith. <laughs> so just the notion that all these religious things are like, God is super complicated, like instead of God being like, "Yeah, you can show people people actually believe this crazy story," God is like, "All right, like no, you can't show anyone because if you do, then that won't require faith."
0: Well, that's okay. So this is the thing, though. This is what drives me crazy is that that is so obviously bullshit. And I think any discerning adult with like any critical thinking skills could be like. Okay, this guy's full of it. I mean, like you know, I'm not, or, or at least I'm not going to dedicate my life to this because some guy theoretically found some plates that some angel. I mean, it just sounds crazy to me, and yet people love those narratives.
1: Yeah, Joseph and, and Campbell talks about that that the, the stories that are supposed to be metaphors become real to people, and then you kind of lose the point.
0: Yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's like so obviously so much of this stuff. And and, and I should say, too, that like a lot of this stuff, as far as I read it, is actually really uh, can actually work really well as allegory. But when it leaves the realm of allegory is when uh, I leave it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so let's get back to you and let's get to how you got to New York, because uh, it's sort of an irresistible uh, story in its own right, is the idea of this young. Um, you know, somewhat uh, rebellious Mormon teenage girl, uh, you know, going to New York City and taking on, you know, that whole experience. Like, uh, paint that picture for me.
1: Well, you know, everyone in my family had always gone to BYU, so it was sort of expected that I would go to BYU, which is in Provo, Utah. And I wanted to go to NYU, and I sort of applied without really letting my parents know. And so when I got in, it was, you know, just this huge thing for me where I didn't really think I would get in, and then I did. And I remember getting that acceptance letter and just sitting down on the stairs and crying because I it, it was though so a whole new path of my life kind of opened up. And I think whether or not I realized the gravity of that moment at the, at the time, I think what it also meant to me was that I didn't have to be like everyone in my family. Like I could be somebody different, which is what New York eventually led me to become. Although I lived in New York for a good eight years as a practicing Mormon. So yeah, 18, my parents were really nervous about me going to the city. Uh, In fact, my mom's advice before I went to college, the first thing she sat me down and said, you know, the first thing that'll happen is she might start to swear (laughs) And I was like, Oh, Oh shit. You know? (laughs) And then, and then she was like, you know, and swearing will lead to drinking and then drinking will lead to doing drugs. And then, and I thought like following it, that the next thing she would say is that drugs would lead to me having sex. But she just looked right into my eyes and said, and Elna. What would you do if a lesbian tried to make out with you? (laughs) That was purely how she saw my life going if I moved to New York City. Uh, But yeah, so they they, they actually they were supportive and they let me go to the city and and I think actually at first you know just being in the city and not knowing anyone and, and being at college and I sort of was surprised how much I clung to the identity of being Mormon. I think that's because it was in my teen a feeder program and everyone was like trying so hard to be different and just out different each other and being Mormon was like genuinely just different and it was this <laughs> culture that I was from. Right. And right. so it became my way of being different and uh and I you know I went to church and it felt really familiar and I liked that. So so I kind of stuck to it with more of a gusto When I was out of the house than I had as a child, I sort of was like, oh, this is what I do, or I am Mormon, and it became a bigger part of my identity. Although I still, like, always question it and was kind of the person in the back of the class raising their hand and and making points that made everyone mad.
0: Well, did you, okay, and did you stray from any of the uh, rules at all? I mean, you're a college freshman, so were there boys? Was there any drinking, or were you...
1: No, you know, I was really, really good. Like I didn't, uh, drink, I, you know, I think the biggest thing that I did was like, I'll look back at journals and, uh, I like, I would like be writing my, like, I can't believe I, essentially I would occasionally masturbate, but I wouldn't even be able to admit that to myself. I would be like, I, last night I, and I just write the letter M (laughs) that was like, I couldn't even write the word down. It was so wrong. Uh, (laughs) yeah, that was about it. And then, uh, I mean, sometimes I would go shopping on Sunday. (laughs) I I really didn't buy coffee. I was very, uh, very committed to, because in my mind, I felt like if I was going to be this, I had to be it all the way. And when I stopped, I, I stopped all the way as well.
0: Okay, so how did you interact with the fellow students? I mean, this this was clearly at odds with the behavior of the great majority of people you were going to school with.
1: Well, I think growing up overseas and being around people who didn't have the same beliefs as me kind of prepared me for that. Because I would go out to bars there would be around people who weren't Mormon, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I had girlfriends in college who were sleeping around or, you know, doing drugs. And it wasn't... It wasn't tempting for me to do those things, but I also feel like in retrospect, I would always be giving advice <laughs> where, like, I literally had no idea what I was talking about.
0: Uh, so you were giving sex advice to your friends?
1: Yeah, more relationship advice, but also like kind of, kind of based around you know, only that they were having sex, but I would still give advice that, in retrospect, was so naive or just didn't really make any sense. <laughs>
0: So yeah, I mean, and it, it, it did. It, I mean, did you find yourself tempted? Were you dating? Were there boys, uh, you know, trying to ask you out or anything like that?
1: Well, I, I found, and I think gradually it kind of ate away at me over the years. But I found that I was getting broken up with because I was Mormon. So I would meet somebody and you know connect with them, but I only had like one or two dates before. it. They were like, You really actually aren't going to have sex? You weren't joking? And I would say, Yes. And then that would be the end of things. <laughs>
0: oh, that's tough, you know? But I mean, at the same time, like, I mean, okay, so I should, how do you feel about that? Because I know, and I hate to say this, but I think if I were uh, a guy in college and I dated a girl, no matter how interested I was in her, if she would have said to me, There's no chance for sex, I think I probably would have. Uh, stop the relationship. I mean, do you feel yeah, I mean, do you feel that it was unfair, or in in retrospect, do you feel like you understand why?
1: Well, at the time, I didn't understand it at all. I was like, "Well, isn't love love? And if we love each other, then <laughs> why well, do you make sacrifices?" But now, being on the other side, yeah, if I got in a relationship and the person said that they didn't want to have sex, I would and wondering if they were not attracted to me. Like, you make it all about your own ego, and yeah. you're like, "Well." I would just spend all this time trying to like tempt them to have sex with me, just to prove that they wanted to. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> I
0: would not respect their beliefs at all. <laughs> yeah, just to torture them a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if I met somebody who I really, really had strong feelings for and I understood why they were having sex, I would try to go with it, but I don't know how successful it would be. Uh, but you know, like, I don't Vilify sex at all. In fact, like once I started having sex, I was surprised how little guilt I felt. Just how, you know, like, all right, well, if I'm doing this, I'm going to do it and I'm going to enjoy this. And
0: you never look back. and
1: Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the first week of it, I was really guilt ridden. I was like, I got to stop. I, I can't believe this happened. And a close girlfriend said to me, you know, you keep kind slipping of up messing up, up it's, you're really hard on yourself about it but you're doing that anyway so you might as well choose to have sex and imagine how fun it would be if you were actually just choosing it and getting to do it and getting to have fun and what she said that I thought she's right like I'm already doing something so as well
0: do it well so how did i mean how did like how old were you when this finally happened like when did you make the flip like when did when did you finally like you said eight years in manhattan uh, as a practicing mormon like what was it that finally uh broke you out of it like and was it one thing or was it sort of like the the accumulation of things over this period of time and did the uh loss of virginity coincide with that or did it precede it or do you know what i'm saying Like, did you make the psychological break yeah. with the religion at the same time that you decided to start having sex or were they slightly um, spaced out
1: they were spaced out at, at, at around 26 i decided i wanted to take a break from being Mormon for about a year i guess it was more like 27 and I took this break where in my head i thought you know because it had all these doubts or questions and when i doubted i was told that you know, I wasn't being a good enough Mormon and that I was allowing temptation into my life. And if I just committed more and was a better Mormon, then I wouldn't have doubts. And so I would have these sort of crises of faith and overcorrect by being more Mormon. And around 27, it finally occurred to me that I didn't know what it was like to not be Mormon. Then I decided I would, a rotten springer, like the Amish do, I would take a year off and do whatever I wanted. And then at least then I could, fairly judge, and I ended up that year really went by very slowly because everything was too terrifying you know to have the you know drink since I was you know I drank a few times when I was in high school but I hadn't really drunk since so to let myself try each of these things was really intimidating because I was afraid like in my head everything was you know if you you drink you'll become an, uh, an alcoholic or if you have sex, you'll be a sex addict. Like, like you play the worst scenario in your head of what will happen if you do these things. So I kind of dabbled gradually, and it wasn't until about a year and a half uh, after taking this break, I ended up having sex at 28.
0: And uh, was it a big relief? Like, was it a terrifying experience?
1: Well, I think at the time that I ended up having sex, I had started to, like, Get closer and closer. So I was doing most of the other stuff, but in my head, there was nothing like sex. Sex was going to be this whole different thing or experience, and I was holding out and I wasn't going to do it. Then when I ended up having sex, I was like, Oh, it's actually kind of the same as all the other stuff, just a little bit more.
0: <laughs> and okay, so, so, so how much? But how much? Like uh, how much articulation of your situation? Was done with your uh, partner? Like, were you like, hey, you know, I'm a Mormon, I've been holding out for all this time, or was there no, you know what I'm saying? Was there, was the intimacy? Oh, it was, was it intimate or overly
1: articulated? Oh, it was. Yeah, I definitely like, I articulated everything. I actually feel really bad for him. He was like, in retrospect, he was sort of this texting ground. (laughs) You're like, we're talking everything out.
0: So, yeah, so you, you just chatted out everything with this guy, and he was a good ear, he listened.
1: He listened, and he was, he was younger than me, and I think it was a little less intimidating that I was a virgin because he was,
0: he was 23. He was 18, and, uh, you know.
1: Yeah, and virginity wasn't like a, that just in the memory for him, so he was more willing to be okay with it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he was, you know, you kind of, you don't have to have sex, you can do whatever you want to do. He was the first guy I ever dated who, didn't pressure me to have sex or pressure me to do anything. He sort of said early on, you know, if you don't feel like doing things, you don't have to. It's totally up to you, and that ultimately is like the best strategy. <laughs> so, like guys, if you if you really want to get a lady to do everything, just tell her you don't need her to do anything. You can still try everything. <laughs> that is the that is the takeaway.
0: Wow, that's good information for my male audience. <laughs> um okay okay so was there i mean because like the the temptation and i think part of this is is informed by popular culture and popular myth but uh the temptation is to imagine that once uh the seal was broken you know to put it i hope not too crudely that you then went completely wild i mean was there any of that where like once you sort of um you know crossed the line did you did you go nuts in any ways or was it relatively controlled
1: it was pretty controlled because I was in a relationship, and then I got in another relationship right after that. So the first year and a half was was pretty controlled, and then and then I had, after that relationship ended, I had like a bad week. Like <laughs> so I had a week where I slept with everyone I knew.
0: <laughs> and then, like what? A, and so does so that? What does that mean? Like how many people? Were, how many people were talking?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if I can put this information out there. Well, just, no, I mean
0: ballpark uh, um, we're talking five people in a week
1: uh, i mean it was more like two weeks but yeah roughly around that maybe a little higher
0: all right that's a that's a good uh, run that's a good run
1: and then, that was my slutty phase it was a very short slutty phase and then and then that was it
0: and then that was it and then uh you know, what was your family's reaction? Like, how much communication did you have? Because, like, one of the things that you were talking about earlier with respect to your parents, and I think it was when you were telling me about your mother and her response to you going off to college and her giving you these instructions about alcohol and uh, sex and whatnot, um, is that, you know, she said, your parents, uh, I, you know, you haven't spoken about your dad, so I can't say it with too, author- too much authority, but it instinctively, I'm, I'm thinking that your parents are sweet people and that you guys, uh, have a lot of love and get along well, even though you have uh disparate views on the ultimate nature of things now. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, at first I kind of just told them that I was taking a break and I thought that maybe they would fill that in. And it wasn't until, you know, later I said that they – they thought me saying I was on a break was me not going to church on Sunday, so they, they had no idea that I was not Mormon anymore.
0: Right.
1: And, uh, and, you know, it's been challenging to try to figure out, have an adult relationship with them, because it hurts them that I'm not Mormon
0: Right, but but you know what? If they get upset that you're not Mormon, why don't you get upset that they're not uh, not Mormon? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like this is a two way street. Like I never ask them to not go to church, so why do they care if I? You know what I'm saying? Like I, I just feel like it's very one sided. Uh, but maybe that's just me trying to like use the Jedi mind trick or something.
1: Yeah, no, I think that the kid in me can't even think that way. <laughs> I can't think that they that you can flip the situation around because they're the grown ups and I'm the and I'm the kid.
0: Yeah. when really like we're both grown ups now. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and yeah, I, I don't know. Like I can you can you sense my my uh my anger over this? Like you trick that you just flip that switch whenever I start talking about this and I start to get all uh hot and bothered. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh so what let me ask you like was there something that you can point to that ultimately pushed you over the line or was it a situation where it was just sort of like a a slow accumulation that gradually like faded into a new way of being for you?
1: I think there are two moments that I can point to. Uh, the first being when I was 25, I almost married another Mormon and moved to Utah and did that whole thing, which I think would have been a different trajectory for my life. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously, (laughs) and when you're Mormon, you're taught that if you pray, God will, you know, give you the right answer and you'll know what to do. So I had, uh, I wasn't sure if I should marry this guy. He kind of seemed like maybe he was a closet, closet gay guy. <laughs> and I was, you know, but he was only Mormon I'd ever dated. So I prayed and I asked if I should marry him and I felt like God answered me. Yes. And so I moved to Utah for this guy. And within two weeks it totally went to shit and I remember coming back to New York and thinking, like, how, how did I get this answer from God if this was the wrong choice? And then this thought entered my head, which kind of was the unraveling of everything, which was, what if you just told yourself that? You know, you've been pressured to meet another Mormon. You've been pressured to get married. That was, you know, the chance to do what people expect you to do. Who's to say that that wasn't you being hyped up and making that choice? And then I kind of started to see all these other spiritual moments in my life that I thought were these outside, you know, voices from God as potentially just my own voice. And then that kind of undid everything.
0: Isn't that interesting? Because, like, there's so much, like, you know, I think it's hard for people who haven't grown up with religion to understand how deeply embedded some of the psychology of this can be, especially because so much of it is, is, is implanted when you're young and when you're, you know, your mind is so soft and malleable and, you know, all the rest and then just the repetition over time. So even when you're an adult and you're an otherwise rational, you know, rational adult to unravel this stuff uh, is difficult. And I don't know, it's just that that process interests me. And like, you know, this kind of small epiphany, was all it took. And then the house of cards just kind of came tumbling down. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. And then I guess the second moment was, you know, I was in New York. I was going to church. So it took another year and a half of going to church after that happened to kind of take the courage to step away. But then the other moment was when prop eight happened and the Mormons got really involved. And I just got really, I felt like there were these things I'd been taught growing up, like Mormons, were polygamists or Mormons didn't let black people have the priesthood. And I thought that's so wrong. That goes against my personal beliefs, but at least they turned around and they stopped doing that. And I can be okay with the fact that we don't do those things now. But then when Prop 8 happened and the church started to get really involved and encourage you to get involved, it just felt completely against my own conscience in a way that I thought, Am I, do I really think that this is a prophet telling me this? Do I really believe in this man as a prophet? Will I follow him? And the answer was, no, I don't think that what they're saying is truth. And, and I think, you know, gay people should be allowed to get married. And just knowing that you could have a leader lead you a stay, and if you wanted to say you were more and you had to follow this person, made me clear in my own head that I didn't want to follow
0: that. And so, and with, about, with regards to your feelings on gay marriage, was this something that you felt from a young age, or was this something that kind of uh, was an outgrowth of, of moving to New York? Or, like, what was it?
1: Yeah, I think it was probably an outgrowth of moving to New York. I mean, well, no, actually, you know, I had teachers in high school that were gay. I feel like I've always been friends with and, and known a lot of gay people. And, you know, you're just sort of taught, like, to, to be... Uh, you know, to be friendly, but don't condone that lifestyle or or whatnot. But I never even felt that way. I just felt like, well, that's natural. That's who they are, and that's what they want. And who am I to say that that's wrong or say that that I should in any way interfere with their right to be who they are as people?
0: Right. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard for people? Do you know what I'm saying? I think a
1: lot of people are, they just are afraid of things that are different yeah but I like really, I don't understand uh, the big thing I don't understand is like why people make it their cause to you know fight against gay marriage or try to stop gay marriage. like I can see you saying like you don't appreciate it, but to actually put effort towards stopping it seems so weird. like how is that going to affect you if gay people get married, how is it ever going to affect your family or your life? Not at all. So why care?
0: Yeah, exactly. Who gives a shit? Let the people have a party and, and get married. I mean, you know, and I, I, it drives me crazy. It's, it seems like such an easy thing, but it clearly isn't for some people yet. But I think it's turning, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what about intellectual? Uh, the intellectual side of it? Like aside from the, like, you know, you, you kind of been talking about the experiential aspects of what caused you to make this change. But then when you talk about uh, like reading or were there people in your life, friends of yours who... Um, you know, had a different view of things. Like, did anyone like talk you down? Did anyone try to like change your mind and was convincing? Did you read any book that, that seemed kind of epiphanic or something? Or was it, um, was it mostly just, you know, your inner world and your experience?
1: I mean, I, I definitely had a lot of friends, especially like the more I began to pursue my own creativity and whether it be writing or storytelling or, Comedy—you interact with people who are more like-minded, and then they discover that you're actually not that like-minded to them. You believe in the Mormon Church, and and so there's this moment of really, you really believe all those things. And um, I think most people respected me and, and my beliefs in in a way that they didn't try to push me to see things differently, but that there were a lot of discussions had, and you know these ideas that would sort of filter into your way of seeing the world or thinking to the point where I, I kind of towards the end of my relationship to being Mormon, I realized that if I really did line up everything I believed or thought, I didn't really think like a Mormon at all. Like it was very gradual, you know, it took years, but it wasn't how I saw the world. It wasn't how I wanted to spend my time.
0: Yeah. Well, you want to know something interesting. I I always say this is that, uh, you know, in my experience, you know, for all the different, you know, uh, differences I would have with the Mormon church, you know, uh, on a point by point level, uh, I do have to say that like some of the nicest people I've ever met are Mormons. Like, and in fact, I don't don't think I've ever met. And and I don't know, this sounds a little bit crazy or or silly or whatever, but I've never met like a mean Mormon person. I've never met it like a Mormon asshole. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but I mean, I just feel like. There's something like uh, unusually kind and, and and I should say authentically kind too. It's not like this like fake sunniness you know that sometimes happens in religious movements or in life in general, but like I just feel like Mormon people are actually really, really kind uh, and so there's that you know, just to sort of like play the other side of it is that they must be doing something right if people are this friendly you
1: know? yeah no, and I feel that way about you know, my mother for my mother's whole life is just centered around trying to be good and do good to other people. And I think a lot of Mormons, the backbone of your religion is about going out of your way to be as good as possible. And so part of me, like, part of the reason I haven't become an anti-Mormon or spoken out against the church is, who am I to stop these people who want to be good? You know, if that's what's making them happy, you know, let them come to it on their own if they want to not be Mormon. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to make someone
0: not Mormon. Yeah, no, because that see that's the thing about it, is that like it just gets so confusing for me after a while where I feel like uh there are aspects of it that are insidious and that are clearly causing damage to people, you know. I, I think there's and, and not just Mormonism, I'm talking about religion in general, but there are also so many aspects of it that are positive and probably outweigh the negatives in uh, a lot of cases, you know, like there are a lot of good things that come of it.
1: Well, yeah, I know. I mean, on that note, I think you're absolutely right. You can't separate the actions of, you know, like if you look at Mormons are good people, but then also, you know, a lot of Mormons are very involved in property and stopping people from getting married right. who are gay. Low right. So, right, so they are good people overall, but then their beliefs that they think they're pursuing for the good of others are misguided. And so that ends up being not good.
0: Yeah. So how do we deal with that? Let's solve this problem.
1: <laughs> I I guess, like you said, that, that there's no easy answer.
0: Yeah. So we're not, you gonna... can't,
1: yeah, you can't solve it. <laughs> and, you know, part of the, you know, I remember being told like, you know, that, it just takes a lot for old people to change their views.
0: Yeah, I'll say so. Uh, just to shift gears, where, where are you in your life right now? How old are you?
1: I'm uh, 30.
0: Okay. So thirty. You okay? So you turned thirty. You you are uh, as yet unmarried.
1: As yet unmarried.
0: And uh, are you? And you're doing uh, live shows and you're writing books. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah, I run a comedy show in Brooklyn. I perform, and then I'm working on another book.
0: And and is this book a memoir as well?
1: No, it's actually the first uh, fiction book I've been... It's a teen fiction adaptation of the French novel, Cousin, so it'll be a different track than than my previous work. But I I think I kind of very purposely took a break from thinking about writing another memoir or turning my life into that material in the sense that I wanted to just make mistakes or try new things without any recognition that i would ever write it down
0: yeah. i think
1: at some point i'll, I'll come to a place where, I, where i'll feel distance enough from these experiences to think you know that that would be good to write out or that's you learned something from that or that's a funny story but i think when you know that you're turning your life into a story it makes you really not present it makes you watch things with the intention of writing them
0: yeah. which
1: is not helps at all.
0: Yeah. You're like out on a date and you're automatically like observing yourself in your date and you know, yeah, it's like a scene. Yeah, exactly. I can see that. Did you do that with your book? Like, did you think with your memoir, like were you, were you in the process of writing it while also gathering material for it or?
1: Not really. I mean, I think that I had written the pitch for what I was intending on writing and it was all things that happened beforehand. But what it made me do in my real life, because I was sort of learning how to become a writer and expressing, was it did make me watch everything that was going around me as though I would write it down. You know, I'd be sitting at a table and somebody would be making some gesture with their hand. And I would think, how how would I put into words that gesture so that somebody reading it would know what I mean? And, uh, and you know, just turn to everything, how, how do you say this? so that people who aren't here can see it from the words I've put on paper. And I feel like it made me really withdraw from the world for a year and a half, two years. But it also helped me figure out how to write.
0: Yeah. Well, and so what, uh, you know, do you find that you have, uh, yeah, I don't know, like any any major insight, like when you look at where you are in your life now and you look back on what you've been through, Uh, to get to this point. um, Like, do you have any regrets or do you have, um, you know, have you arrived at some sort of perspective on it that you can share or that you can distill down into, you know, a few sentences? (laughs) Like what, what did you learn essentially about yourself going through all of this?
1: I guess I've learned that I'm very capable of adapting. And I think I had so many fears about what would happen if I stopped being Mormon or how it would affect my family or hurt other people or let people down or any of this. But I realized once, once you go through an experience or in the process of letting these things happen, you adapt, people around you adapt, and it, it ends up being okay. And I think that a lot of times people get paralyzed by taking action or changing because they're afraid that it will ruin everything or that their whole life might fall apart. And what I've learned is your life doesn't really fall apart because you're there and you're able to keep changing or get used to things and that, that you don't need to be so afraid of, of life happening.
0: And then what about, uh, what about the relationship between your mental state, your ability to change... Uh, all of that stuff, you know, in your interior world uh, and then your exterior environment, like how much of what has happened to you do you feel is owed to the fact that you were in a place like New York? Uh, if anything, do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you feel like these changes would have happened anyway? Or do you feel like because you happened to be in this environment and you had access to all these different kinds of people and all these different cultures and everything else, like how much of that? do you think catalyzed your evolution?
1: It's hu- it's so hard to know. I think that as a person I was always a questioning person or I always saw the world in a particular way that made me incapable of just going with things or being satisfied or, you know, I always had to look at things too much, is what my parents said, or that you, f- you think too much. Uh and I thought it was a bad thing. Now I, I don't actually think it's that bad of a thing to think too much. Uh, <laughs> There's worse things to think too I, much. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I do think that if I had married another Mormon or had kids, done any of that stuff, it, it would have been harder to step away because there would be so many people on board who I was disappointing. So in some ways, I think that it totally makes sense that Mormons are, like, told to get married immediately <laughs> so that they can't get out. Right. <laughs> but, uh but yeah, so it's hard to say, but I definitely owe a lot of, of, the, of the insight into life and the ways that you can live as a person to the incredible people I've met in New York or experience I've, I've gotten to, to have.
0: Sure. Well, I'll tell you, it's fascinating, and it's uh, it's been wonderful talking with you. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, folks, there you have it. That's Elna Baker. Go get her book. It's called The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance, and it is available now from Penguin. You can find Elna online at elnabaker.com. She's on Twitter, at Elna Baker, and you can track her down on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. You can follow it on the Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at com. And, hey, if you like the program, if you find it edifying, Uh, and enjoyable please go over to itunes and rate it and give it a a nice review to do that just open up itunes go into the itunes store search for other people and you can rate it and review it right there it takes two minutes of your time it really does help the cause and i would appreciate it a ton thank you to kill rock stars for all the great music be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. and thanks once again to today's sponsor the UCLA Extension Writers Program. If you're working on a book, whether it's a novel or a collection of short stories, or you're writing a screenplay of some sort and you want some instruction uh, or some uh, better discipline or some help, uh, some camaraderie among art, you know, artistic types, go sign up for a class. You can attend classes right here in Los Angeles in person, or you can do it via the internet, whatever your druthers. Either way works, and there's no time like right now to get it done. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter Uh, Okay, so uh, I also just want to clarify that I'm not serious about wanting to strap dynamite to my chest as a remedy to awkward social situations. Uh, I don't want to send the wrong signal or confuse anybody. I'm just saying that the intensity of my awkwardness can at times be so acute that such cartoonish flights of fancy happen in what is essentially a spontaneous manner. Uh, Okay, so please remember that Winston Churchill and Napoleon both failed Latin and that Ivan the Terrible died while playing chess, I will be back again soon with another episode of this show, another dialogue with another writer, all for you. Thank you very much for tuning in. And please, whatever you do, do not place a chili dog in direct sunlight.